All right, well, if you are a kid between, uh, I think, four and first grade, uh, you can head off to Kids Church this morning uh, with Miss Betty. She's in the green shirt in the back, so you can follow her. So, All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, looking forward to studying God's Word with you guys this, this morning. Uh, we just started going through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew probably through the end of the summer or so here. And I'm really looking forward to walking through this book with you guys. And it's one that I've been wanting to study for a while, and it's just kind of just the right time now to spend a good chunk of time walking through that. And so I'm just really looking forward to see as we study the, the, the person and the work of Jesus as told to us through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm just looking forward to see how God's going to be at work in revealing himself to us and in shaping our hearts and our lives. And so, so I'm really looking forward to that. But before we dive in this morning, I just wanted to give us some, some context for the book of Matthew as a whole, because that's really going to impact our study, not just this morning, but throughout this year as we study it together. And, and so I just want to give us a little framework as we dive into our passage. So like every book, Matthew, it had an original audience and a, and a purpose. It, it was written to someone for a reason in a certain time and a place. And, and we, a lot of times what happens is we overlook that when we're reading the Bible, and we just kind of assume that the Bible was written to us or that it's about us and that it speaks directly to us. But that's just really not the case. You see, the Bible is for us, but it wasn't written to us. And that, that changes things because... We want to do the hard work of understanding. If we want to understand what God's Word says and what it means for our lives, we need to do the hard work of understanding who it was written to and why it was written so that we can contextualize that rightly for our own lives and so uh, what that means for us. And so in this case, it's important to understand that Matthew is uh, written by a guy named Matt, Matthew. Matthew is the answer to that question, right? This is not a really hard test. That was just that was a freebie for you guys, okay? Okay. Uh, uh, the book is actually technically anonymous, which means Matthew doesn't say, hey, this is Matthew, I wrote this book, right? But from the very beginning, everybody knew that it was him and they credited it to him. It's, it's kind of like if you write a note to your wife and you leave it on the kitchen counter, like you didn't write your name on it, but she knows it's you. That, that's that's kind of what's going on in Matthew. His name isn't on it in the sense that he, author, like, hey, this is mine, I signed my name at the bottom. But it, it's technically not as meaning that he, he wrote it. People knew that he wrote it, and, that, and that's kind of what's going on here. And so Matthew, we'll meet him in a couple of weeks in chapter 9, but he was one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector that Jesus called to follow him. And so Matthew is written by this guy named Matthew, but Matthew is written to religious people. It's written to people who had grown up in church, grown up going to church their whole lives. It's written to people who kind of knew all the stories, who knew all the rhythms, who knew all the rules, who knew all the, the calendar, all that kind of stuff. They, they, they were kind of immersed in it. But for most of them, it was just kind of going through the motions. It was just kind of a religious experience for them. It wasn't something that was really tragically, radically changing their lives. Maybe that's like your religious experience growing up. You kind of went to church, going to church all the time, but... It was just kind of going through the motions. And so Matthew is, is writing his gospel in order to wake up religious people to the good news that all the stuff that they heard about throughout the Old Testament, all the stuff they learned in church growing up, all the stuff that they learned in Sunday school, all that stuff, that that was actually true and that, and that it was coming to fulfillment. All the promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament, they were, they were coming to fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. And so Matthew's main theme, his big announcement throughout this whole gospel is that God's kingdom is finally here. 
God's kingdom is finally here. And so throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew is telling us and proving to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the promised king who God promised would come and usher in God's kingly rule and reign on the earth. And so in all the stories in Matthew, what he's doing is he's telling us about the nature and the character of Jesus the king. And he's telling us about what his kingdom is like. We saw in chapter 1, he began by giving us the credentials of King Jesus. He talked about his family line, and he talked about how Jesus was, his, he was fully human, but he was also fully God. And so Matthew's giving us his kingly credentials. And in chapter 2, we saw the authority of the king, the magi come and worship him, showing us that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of all of the nations. And that he is worthy to be worshipped by everyone, everywhere, in every time and place and season. And we saw later on in chapter 2 that Herod was trying to stop Jesus' coming, but there was nothing that he or anyone else could do to keep God from keeping his promises. You see, Jesus has come, and there is nothing that could stop him from coming. And Matthew's announcement that he rings out in the beginning of his book is that God's kingdom is here. And the king who has come to rule and reign, it is good news that he has come. He's a king like no one else. There is no one like him in all of history. He is absolutely unique. And so the question as we begin chapter 3 this morning that Matthew sets up for us is this. How will you respond to that king? He has been announced. He has been proclaimed throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew's question is this. How will you respond to King Jesus and his kingdom? And so this morning, as we study chapter 3, we're going to see this incredibly strange yet influential guy named John the Baptist. And Matthew's going to show us through, through John what characterizes a right response to the coming of King Jesus and his kingdom. And what we'll see this morning is that repentance and baptism, that's what characterizes a right response to Jesus and his kingdom. See, the right response is, is both internally realized by a repentant heart, and it's externally expressed in the act of baptism. And so this morning we're going to study Matthew 3. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll read God's word and we'll dive into our study together this morning. Jesus, we are so thankful for you. God, we are grateful that you have given us your word so that we might know you and that we might know your heart. So God, as we come this morning, God, we just say we are dependent on you. God, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that as I teach and that like whatever I say is, is from you, that it's powerful and fruitful and effective and good. God, and I don't have the power to make that true. Only you do. God, and we need you to make our hearts teachable and to cause us to be able to receive the truth from your word. And so, God, where our hearts stand in opposition to you, God, we pray that you would graciously break down those walls in our heart, God, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And so, God, we just come dependent on you. We come needing your goodness to rearrange our hearts and lives, and we need your power to, to, to empower any of that to happen. And so, God, we just come asking that you would. God, we are so grateful that you love to meet us in those requests. You love to meet us in your word. Pray these things in your good name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think to yourselves that you can save, you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You see, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals that I'm not worthy to carry, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? And Jesus replied, so let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove uh, on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love with him I am well pleased. This morning as we study, what I want to show you is through that, through what Matthew's trying to teach us through this incredibly strange guy, John the Baptist. Matthew's, Matthew's telling us what it looks like to respond rightly to the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. And so as we, as we study, there's three things that we're going to need to see about John the Baptist if we want to understand what that right response to Jesus' kingdom coming is. We need to see John's mission We need to see John's message, and last, we need to see John's Messiah. It's John's mission. See, our passage begins with this really strange guy who is preaching out in the wilderness. He's wearing strange clothes and eating strange food. It's kind of like a a picture of Bear Grylls, but without the camera crew and a little bit more intense, right, if that's a thing, okay? And so what we see, but we see that in verse 3, he's not just like a crazy guy out talking to the woods in the midst of the trees. He's not just like wandering around, lost his mind. No, we see he's a man on a mission. Verse 3 tells us, this is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What's happening here is Matthew is quoting the prophet Isaiah in verse 40, chapter 40, verse 3 here, and he's saying, John the Baptist over here? He's the guy that Isaiah was writing about. He's the one that God said was going to come before the Messiah. He was going to come to make paths straight. He was going to get ready the way. He's saying that John the Baptist is kind of like the messianic hype man. It's like the, the guy before all the fights, like the let's get ready to rumble guy, right? That's John the Baptist. Like that's, that's his role. He's like the messianic hype man. And what we see is that he is simultaneously the best and the worst hype man of all time, right? See, he does an amazing job of getting people's attention. That's the job of a hype man, right? You're, you're trying to get the attention, get everybody's focus, get everybody's attention. He does an amazing job that we see verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and Judea and this whole region of the Jordan. See, his clothes, his diet, his lifestyle, his words, they're all a bit strange. But the reason for that, he was trying to get people's attention. And like any good hype man, the attention he was trying to get wasn't for himself. It was for the Lord. It was for God. And so John does this incredibly great job of getting his people's attention, but he is not getting people psyched. He's not getting people hyped up. He's getting them ready. You see, John's mission is to get people ready to respond to King Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. And that brings us to the second point this morning. We see not just John's mission, we see John's message. Verse 2 writes this, John's message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
See, the question is this, what, what, what is John calling us to? What, what is, why does he say repent? What, is, what does that word mean? Well, that word repent, it, it means to reconsider or to turn around. It, it means a, a change of direction of, of your heart and of your mind and, and of your life. And so there's three things in our passage that show us the kind of turning that happens, that kind of reconsidering that happens when, when true repentance happens. We see, first of all, in verse 6, we see the crowds come, and what are they doing in verse 6? They are confessing their sin. You see, repentance begins always with confession. It's admitting that our hearts and our minds and our lives, that they are at odds with God's word and with his will, that that we are opposed to him. I just want to talk just briefly about sin this morning. See, sin, a lot of times what we think about when we think about sin is we think about bad behavior, right, Or, or, or moral things. But sin is not primarily about behavior. See, sin is about rebellion against God. See, the same thing that happened in the garden is the same thing that happens to our hearts as well. See, we reject God's good rule and authority. We doubt that he has our best interest in mind. And so we say, God, uh, I'm not gonna, you're not going to be the ruler of things anymore. I am going to be the ruler of things. I want to be the one who decides what is good and right and life-giving. And so what happens is we stage a coup against God. And we dethrone him as the king and the ruler, the one with authority in our lives and in, and in this world. And we enthrone ourselves because we want to be the ones that decide what is true and right and good. And we want to be the ones who, dis, who want to be in charge. We want the world to revolve around us and our desires and, and our goals and our priorities. You see, what happens is we want to play God. And what's really going on is a spiritual mutiny. And it leads to behavior that is out of line with God's word and God's will. But our behavior is not the primary thing that we need to repent of. It's our rebellious hearts that have rejected God's rule and his authority. And that leads to all the the stuff that's in our lives that's out of line with God's word and his will. But the primary thing that's going on is that we have rejected God's rule and authority and we've enthroned ourselves. You see, true repentance is always marked by confession, not just of wrong behavior, but of a heart that stands in opposition to God, a heart that wants to be God ourselves. You see, it's important to see here, see, repentance, it doesn't just mean feeling guilty for something. And it doesn't also mean trying to make up for whatever it is that you feel guilty for. It's not about minimizing what you think you did or about blame shifting or about trying to kind of just like admit to as little as possible just to like say that you did but really get out of the under the weight of it. It's not about trying to get back on God's good side or getting him to bless you by repenting. That's just manipulation. It means confession, true repentant confession. It means owning the depth of our rebellious hearts. It means admitting to the truth that we have said, God, we reject your rule and authority. We've all made that choice to do it. You see, but true repentance is not just about confessing our sinful rebellion. It's also about rejecting our reliance on anything that we can do to fix that. You see, that's what John's talking about in verse 9 when he's talking to the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. He says this, he says, Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious elites of their day. They were kind of the the hyper-religious people of their day. And they made tons of extra rules to make sure that they weren't breaking any of God's rules. And, And they thought that they could just try hard enough to obey God and to please him. And John is saying, nah. That's uh that's not that's not how it works, guys. He's saying, your moral fervor. It's not impressing God. See, a lot, a lot of people think that they can be good without God or that you, that you can be good enough for God. 
But the truth is, is that God's standard is not good enough. God's standard is perfection. See, what pleases him, what impresses him is a perfectly lived life. None of us measure up to that. And see, the Bible is saying that, the Bible says that on our best day, on the day that we just feel like we just nailed it, that we just like obeyed the best, that we just like, like shared the gospel with 75 people, like, like the day that we felt like we just nailed it, the Bible says what we're bringing to God that looks like filthy, bloody rags. He is not impressed by our moral fervor. John, passage goes on, John says, and neither is he impressed by your family heritage. John says, you think just because you can trace your family heritage back to Abraham, the, the, father, of the uh, father of the faith, that you're right with God? He's saying, that's not how it works either. He said, and this is really important to say, just because your parents or your grandparents, they call themselves Christians, or it doesn't make it true of you. There's no such thing as like a spiritual grandfathering into relationship with God. You see, true repentance, it, it begins with admitting and with confessing our sin and, and rejecting our rebellious self-sufficiency, whether that's our reliance on our own effort or, or anything else that we think brings us into, into right relationship or right standing with God. And lastly, what we see in our passage this morning is that true repentance is characterized by a new way of life. John, uh, verse 8, John says to the Pharisees, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, repentance is not mere confession. It's not just admitting to what, it's not just admitting to our rebellious hearts. It's turning away from it. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's not just an acknowledgement of our sin or, or asking for forgiveness. It's a turning away from it. It looks like a life that is fundamentally different. You see, my words, they don't mean anything unless my life backs it up. If I tell my wife that I love her, but I don't reveal that with my priorities, if I don't reveal that in the choices that I make, if I don't reveal that with the way that I serve her, with the, with the ways that I love her in actual life, it doesn't mean anything. It's just words. In fact, what's probably going to happen is she's going to resent when I say that if my life doesn't reveal and prove that that is true. You see, true repentance, it's, it's marked by, by confession of our sin, our rebellious hearts. It's, it's marked by, by rejecting our self-sufficiency it's marked by a new life. And lastly, we see that the outward sign of repentance, of this turning from sin, we see that the outward sign of that is, is the act of baptism. John was baptizing these people, but, but his baptism, it wasn't saving them. Instead, it was an outward symbol of what was going on in their hearts. You see, the passage that tells us that John was baptizing the people in the Jordan, which held a special significance for the Jewish people. As one pastor notes, he says, the Jordan River was the boundary between Israel and the wilderness, and it was the place where Israel, under Joshua, crossed over into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. And so John's baptism was a public symbol that reenacted their leaving the wilderness of sin and entering the promised land of obedience passing from death, order life. You see, it was a symbol of their turning from sin and their desire to leave it behind. And so as we read the passage, we think, all right, things are going well. Right? God's at work in people's lives. He's, he's bringing people to repentance. That, that's good. People are publicly acknowledging what God's doing in their hearts. But John's message doesn't end with Repentance. It's not the end of what he's talking about. You see, John's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus, and his message began with a repentant preparation. But what John says is that that's not enough. 
See, repentance isn't just enough. We don't, we don't just need to see John's mission, John's message of repentance. We need to see John's Messiah. See, verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there is one who comes who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to, to, to carry. He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. See, John's saying, it's not enough for you to just turn away from sin. You have to turn towards the one who's going to empower you to actually live a new life of repentance. You have to turn towards Jesus. You see, he says, I'm just, I'm just calling you to repentance and offering you this outward symbol of what's going on in your heart. It's important and good, but it's not enough. He says, but Jesus is coming. And what he's going to do is he is the one who's actually going to empower you to live a life of repentance. It's something you cannot do on your own. You see, in Jesus' baptism, in verses 13 through 17, we, see, we get a glimpse, we get a picture, we get a foreshadowing of how Jesus is going to accomplish that for us. Verse 13 begins this way, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And you're thinking, why, why is Jesus getting baptized? <laughs> he doesn't need to repent of anything. What, what, what's going on there? John is also confused. You see that in verse, 15, verse 14. He's like, what? No, no, no. No, I think, Jesus, you, you have this around, right? Like, I, I usually do the baptizing, but like, you're the one who's really supposed to do it. So let's, let's flip those roles. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand, John. You see, the truth is that Jesus didn't need to repent. He was perfect and sinless. Jesus did not need to repent. The truth is that you and I do. You see, and in getting baptized, what Jesus is doing is he is identifying with sinners. You see, Jesus' ministry is one of, 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 it's one of replacement. Jesus' ministry is, is one where he substitutes himself for us. See, in the cross, what's going on is, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is identifying with sinners. And at the cross, what he's doing is he is taking our place. He trades places with us so that what the Father says about Jesus in verse 17, that becomes true of us. The Father says about Jesus in verse 17, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. I love him. You see, what happens is on the cross, Jesus takes our place. He trades places with us so that what is said about him becomes true of us. See, that's the good news about the gospel. See, the good news about the gospel that Matthew writes about throughout his book is not about what you and I need to do. It's about what Jesus has already done for us. You see, Matthew's gospel is not a message that requires urgent effort. It's a gospel, it's a message that requires an urgent response. You see, throughout John's passage, the passage this morning, John's message of repentance is in light of the coming of Jesus' kingdom. He says Jesus is coming as a king. He is coming as the Savior. He's coming as the Messiah. But he also says Jesus is not just coming as a Savior. He is also coming as judge. Verse 10 says the axe is, at the, is already at the foot of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down, thrown in the fire. Verse 10, Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff in an unquenchable fire. You see, Jesus is coming to save, but he is also coming to judge because he is good and he is just. You see, and what Matthew is showing us here in chapter 3 through this strange guy, John the Baptist, is that what characterizes a right response to the coming of Jesus and his kingdom is an urgent response, but it's a one of humble and repentant faith. 
in the only one who can save us from our sin and empower us to live the new life that we are called to live in him. You see, in the outward sign of that inward change that's going on is the public expression of that is baptism. See, baptism and repentance, baptism and repentance, they go hand in hand. Otherwise, you're just, what you're doing is just kind of getting wet in front of people. See, baptism and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't separate those things. And for the people that John baptized, it was a public symbol that reenacted their leaving the wilderness of sin and entering the promised land of repentant faith and obedience, passing over from death to life. It was a, it was a symbolic reenacting of that. And so baptism for us as well is an expression of faith. It's an expression of faith to God. It's not a means of receiving grace from God. And it's an expression of the grace we have already received by faith in him. It's an expression of our union with Christ and our joining with him. You see, what happened is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And Jesus died the death that you and I deserved to die for our sin. And Jesus rose from death, giving us new life in him, overcoming Satan and sin and death. You see, and that's why we immerse people at River City Church. We're not rigid about that. It's not like it's the one way you can do baptism. But the reason why we do this is because baptism is about telling a story. And in, and in immersing people, what we're telling is that we, we are united with Christ in his life, and we are buried with him as his death, and we are raised again with him in newness of life. You see, it's a story, it's a symbol, and so that's why we do that. We're not rigid about that, but that's the reason why we do it that way. You see, and so the call for all of us this morning in response to God's word in Matthew 3 is one of humble repentance. It's one where we acknowledge our sin, where we admit to it, where we own our rebellious and wicked hearts against God. It's one that we reject our self-sufficiency or the belief that we bring anything to the table in order to fix our sin or to make ourselves right with God. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to change our status or our standing with God. And so our repentant, humble confession is one of utter reliance on Jesus on him being the one who renews and restores and who makes life out of death. And so in response to our repentant hearts, we get baptized. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you have trusted him to be the one that, that your life is united with, that he lived the life you should have lived, that he died the death you should have died, and that he, and by faith in him, he gives you new life in his resurrection life, then you get baptized. We'll be doing a baptism service this spring. If you want to get baptized, come talk to me. I would love to do that. It's an exciting thing. We love doing baptisms here at River City Church. If you have more questions about baptism, we don't have time to really do the deep dive on all the details about that, but Aaron, uh, one of the other pastors at the church, he preached a really helpful sermon about baptism this past summer. You can find that on our website, on the podcast feed. I just would really encourage you to look into that if you have more questions about that. And so the call for all of us is to a humble repentance and to respond in baptism. But if you've been baptized, but you've never truly repented, see, Matthew's message through John the Baptist is is clear as well. You see, there is only one way to right relationship with God, and getting dunked or dipped or sprinkled or whatever way you get baptized, that's not the thing that changes your status or your standing with God. Only a humble and repentant heart whose hope is in Christ That's the one thing that can save us. That's the one thing that changes our hearts and our lives. And so the invitation this morning is that you might come to him. See, the gospel is good news for those who come in humble repentance, looking for grace, seeking grace, you see, because Jesus has done all that is required to make us right with God. 
His work is finished. His work is complete. It is enough. And so the invitation is that we might put our hope and our faith and our trust in him. You see, and that's what we remember when we celebrate communion. What we're doing is we're the bread and the drink, they're reminding us of Jesus' body and of his blood, which was broken and, and shed for us. And as he lived the life that we should have lived, and as he died the death that we should have died, paying the penalty only he could pay so that we could be forgiven and accepted and made right before God. You see, what we're doing as we take communion every week is we are proclaiming the gospel. We're saying this is who Jesus is, this is all that he has done, and this is who we now are because of him. Communion, it does not make you right with God. It doesn't save you, just like baptism. It doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's an outward symbol of what's going on in your heart. And so if you have trusted Jesus this morning, if you have believed the gospel, if your hope is in him, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back, one on the left, one on the right. During our time of worship, just as you see fit, you can go back and you dip the bread in the juice and you take communion that way. But, it, but if a repentant and humble heart is not the case for you this morning, then I encourage you, instead of taking communion, don't just do that as a, a religious act. Talk with God. He'll let you know when the right time is for you. And as we take communion this morning, I just invite all of us, Spend time talking with God. Ask him to keep showing you the good news about who Jesus is and the coming of his kingdom. How that radically changes and transforms everything about who we are. And ask him to show you your own sin and to empower you to confess it and to turn from it. Ask him to show you the good news that you bring nothing to the table but that he's brought everything that allows you to reject any self-sufficiency that you have and trust entirely on him and his work to save. And ask him by his spirit to empower you to live the new life that, that, he can, that you can only live with him and by his power. You see, the goal of our lives, live for Jesus, is so that all the world might hear the good news that Jesus is king, that his kingdom is come, and that it's good news for all who might come in humble repentance and faith. It's good news that is open to everyone. It is good news that Jesus is the king of every nation and he calls people without, without prejudice, he calls people without qualification to come to him in humble repentance. You see, the gospel is good news for all, but it's good news that must be responded to. Let's pray. Jesus, we come this morning, we are so thankful for you and for your word. God, we are grateful this morning for, God, for your word through Matthew about John the Baptist and his strangeness, God, which shows us what it looks like to respond rightly to your come, to your kingly rule and reign, to your coming kingdom. And so, God, we just say that we cannot respond rightly without you being the one at work in us. God, we can't feel guilty enough. We can't want it enough. We can't just, like, we can't just get badgered into feeling that way. God, we need you to be the one that reorients our heart, that causes us to repent, to reconsider, to turn. God, we, we cannot do that ourselves. We need you to be the one that does it for us. And so, God, we come asking that you would graciously do it. God, we are so grateful that your offer of life is for all who would come to you in humble repentance. God, I pray that you might soften all of us, our hearts, so that we might come to you and we might receive life and grace in you. God, that we might come to receive the life that we need from you. And Jesus, by your grace, we ask that you would empower us to live a life of repentance, that God, one that we could never live without you, thank you that you have come 
that you've died the death, that you have lived the life we should have lived, that you have died the death we should have died, and that you have raised to give us a new life in you. God, our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. God, we pray that we might, you might empower us to live for you. God, for your glory, for our good, we pray in your good name. Amen.